Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is John K. Locke, an attorney, historian, and senior advisor and counsel to South Dakota Senator John Thune. John Locke has authored several books on Midwestern political and economic history, but today he'll be discussing the lost region toward a revival of Midwestern history, as well as his most recent uh, office, president of the Midwestern History Association. Uh, John. You uh, have written a book. I mean, first, thank you very much for for joining us and discussing this uh, topic. Um, Thank you, Albert. I was uh, struck by many, many things, uh, by your book and by the uh, recent session that you arranged at the uh, Organization of American History uh, Annual Conference. Um, But let me uh, quote you to yourself first. Uh, which is a favorite sensation for for most academics, I have to have to say, it, it's uh, autoeroticism for many of us. Uh, you you write to end the neglect of their region. Midwestern historians will need to explain why the Midwest matters to the broader course of American history. Let's start with that as our, our jumping off point. Uh, first of all, is the Midwest neglected, and how? Well- First of all, thank you, Albert, for taking the time to talk about this. I really appreciate it, and it was great to meet you down in St. Louis, and I'm I'm glad we've connected on this topic. And yes, uh, the Midwest does matter. Um, in fact, uh, one of the beginnings of this book was an article I wrote for a uh, for a journal entitled "Why the Midwest Matters," <laughs> and uh, we 
had a nice discussion about that, uh, several people who weighed in on it, and it was a good uh, beginning, a good way to broach this entire topic. But you really can't understand the United States unless you study and understand the Midwest and include it in your outlines when you're teaching the history of this nation. I mean, it was a central uh, issue in the uh, first global war, also known as the French and Indian War, which ended up precipitating the American Revolution. And there were a lot of machinations during the American Revolution about what would happen to what they then called the West, but what we now call the Midwest. Uh, this is a major issue, but it gets neglected because people tend to focus on George Washington and the Eastern Seaboard and uh, what was happening in Imperial London. Uh, but what was happening in the back country was also uh, very important. And it was one of the precipitating uh, causes of the revolution. Uh, people forget about all the frictions that there were between the colonials and the British when it came to what we would now call the Midwest. And of course, over uh, a longer course of time, the settlement of the Midwest and its industrial development and its urbanization and its role in American life today, um, these are major elements of American life, but they just don't get very much focus by American historians. And that's uh, what I lay out in a lot of detail in my book, The Lost Region. You um, quote, I believe, uh H.L. Mencken said it, saying of Willa Cather, I don't care how well she writes, I don't give a damn what happens in Nebraska, which could have been written about Ted Kuzer or uh, last week, I guess, or 10, 10 years ago when he was Poet Laureate. Right. No, uh, it's very true. It's a very common um, attitude among the people that pull the levers of our cultural institutions, which tend to uh, be located on the coasts, especially in New York and Boston. And H.L. Uh, Mencken, of course, was in Baltimore, but he spent a lot of time in New York, and his attitude uh, was very common um, and remains very common to this day. I was at, on a panel this weekend at the Center for Western Studies at um, at Augustana College in Sioux Falls, not your Augustana College down the other, in, the other one. in the Quad Cities. But uh, there was a young man there who uh, publishes um, literature from the Midwest, and he has a, uh, a book that comes out every year, News Stories from the Midwest. And he said he was just at a liter literary conference, and uh, a New York publisher uh, came by his booth and uh, looked sort of quizzically at him and uh, said to him, without an introduction or any sort of preliminary niceties, said to him, uh, why do I want to read stories about corn? I don't care about <laughs> corn. And uh, I think that sort of encapsulates um, this problem. Um, there's also, uh, since we're talking about literature, there's a new journal that just started this year called Flyover Country Review. <laughs> and, and I think that sort of uh, captures the problem, too. I mean, it's uh, this part of the country is uh, seen by many people as, uh, as flyover country, as unimportant, as not important to the unfolding of uh, the American story. And so we're trying to, we're trying to tap into that 
sense of neglect and, and not just that sense of neglect, that actual neglect. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to do something about it. How did this uh, endeavor come up, uh, come to be? And this whole, what's now become, uh, I mean, you've done an amazing job. Uh, your social media guy is a graduate student at Iowa State, I believe. Uh, this entire endeavor has really been meticulously rolled out. Uh, but when we were discussing in the in the pre-podcast uh, discussion, you were telling me a little bit about how it came to be. And it, it was a little bit more uh, random and spot, well, I should say spontaneous than I had, than I had thought. It has very specific origins, and uh, it uh, it was not entirely planned by any means. I I had been asked uh, sometime in I don't know 2003 or four, or I, actually I should say I was not asked. I was told <laughs> by the chair of my department uh, at the time at South Dakota University uh, about a month before classes were to begin. I was told. Um, oh, by the way, you need to teach the history of South Dakota this fall because it's an important class for people who become teachers. So I I went about uh, doing this, and in the course of it, I I found the story of the settlement of Dakota Territory very compelling and ended up writing a book about it entitled Prairie Republic. But one of the things I noticed about... uh, the settlement of Dakota Territory, is that 85% of the American settlers, now I'm talking about people who moved into Dakota from within the United States, as opposed to yeah. Norwegian immigrants or German immigrants those, or whatever. Those but, be, my, my great-grandparents moved to Dakota directly from uh, Germany. Well, maybe a brief stop, really? yeah, a brief stop in Nebraska, maybe. Yes, well, that was very common. I mean, uh, Nebraska, the Dakotas, they're very heavily German, a lot of German immigrants. But I'm talking about uh, the people who moved from inside the United States. Eighty-five percent of them who moved to Dakota Territory moved from the Midwest, and they moved from Illinois and Wisconsin and Ohio. Those were particularly strong states for settlers. And so after I finished the book and finished the manuscript and it came out as a book in 2010, I just thought I would do one quick follow-up article to that and say something about what it means that all these settlers in Dakota Territory were Midwestern. And how did that influence the institutional makeup of the state and the culture of the state? And I thought this would not be a complex project. But when I started to try and uh, read up on the basic uh, story of the Midwest so I could make some general conclusions, I started to notice that there really was very little written about the Midwest in recent decades. And uh, after some more digging, I discovered that uh, early in the 20th century, there once was a very vibrant and active field of Midwestern history. And it actually was the precursor to the organization of American historians. And I found this to be a, a fascinating story about how these historians in Iowa and Minnesota, Nebraska, Illinois, all came together in 1907 in a meeting um, in Lincoln, Nebraska, and formed a new historical society called the Mississippi Valley Historical Association because they were tired of being neglected by the broader uh, institutions of professional historians in the United States, and they were ignored in particular by the American Historical Association. So 
they began their own organization. I found this to be a fascinating story. And anyway, I kind of dropped my uh, article about the uh, Midwesterners who moved into uh, Dakota Territory and started studying this phenomena of um, of Midwestern history, why it was once strong and why it fell apart. And ultimately, this becomes my book, uh, The Lost Region. Mm-hmm. And because uh, the book was going to come out in the fall of 2013, um, uh, we organized a little panel uh, for the fall of 2013 at the Northern Great Plains History Conference, where some people would come together and offer their thoughts on the field of Midwestern history and why it uh, had languished in recent decades. And uh, that was supposed to uh, correspond with the uh, the launch of the book that fall. Well, uh, about a month or two before the conference was to begin, I sent an email to the people who attend the conference. Um, and this this year it happened to, or in that year it happened to be in Wisconsin, so it was kind of a perfect setting for this for this book. Um, and by the way, we had to meet at the Northern Great Plains History Conference because there was no history conference that focused on the Midwest. Right. And so we ended up at the Northern Great Plains Conference. I sent an email to people saying, eh, this is kind of an interesting topic. We're going to have a panel about it at the um, at the conference in October. Um, if you guys, if anybody wants to talk about this more, let's meet in the bar at 5 o'clock on Friday of the conference. And I did not know how many people would show up. I figured a couple of my friends would show up who I've um, sort of talked about this uh, in the past with. Uh, But it turns out 35 people showed up. And when that happened, um, you know, it sort of turned on the light bulb, like there's there's something bigger going on here. There's a greater desire out there than maybe we thought um, to do something about uh, the lack of Midwestern history. Hmm. And several people who have taught in the Midwest for 30 or 40 years sort of weighed in on their experiences with this and their frustration with the fact that they had nowhere to publish their work. I mean, you could publish in journals on the Great Plains, or you could publish in journals about the South or on the West. But that, you know, in the West at one point kind of included the Midwest, but they've kind of lost that focus, and they're kind of focused on the Trans-Missouri River West mostly Uh now. And so... People writing about the Midwest or who wanted to write about the Midwest were essentially homeless. And so we began to talk about how could we change this and could we start a journal for so people would have a place to send uh, their work. And uh, pretty soon we had declared the beginning of the Midwestern History Working Group, um, which we decided would uh, meet for the following year and have some uh, panels at other conferences and reach out to other people, and, you know, start uh, a Facebook page and just see if there, take the temperature of other people in the region and see if there was an interest in something bigger. And uh, that turned out to be very successful. And we had meetings in Omaha and at the Western History Association and a few other uh, conferences. And, you know, we sort of decided we were at critical mass and there was a lot of interest in this. So 
we had a meeting a year after that first meeting and and declared the beginning of the Midwestern History Association. And we formally uh, went through the process of adopting bylaws and electing officers and and choosing some prizes that we would award uh, every year for good uh, work in Midwestern history. And and uh, so it's it's taken off very quickly. And I think that speaks to the fact that there are a lot of people out there who do recognize on on a second look uh, the neglect of the Midwest as a field of study. You, um, in the end of the book, you suggest uh, of various means that could be undertaken uh, to revive Midwestern history, including setting up an association again. Um, you also suggest someone going to Warren Buffett and asking him for a, a large check. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's happened yet, but um, good luck. I have not uh, been put on uh, Warren Buffett's calendar yet, uh, but maybe he'll hear this broadcast and uh, and express some interest. Yeah, he won't. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but maybe someone who does can can give generously, uh, yes. in the interest of uh, Midwestern filial pietism. But I, I want to make it clear that this is not a filial pietistic. I mean, some people have taken this. I mean, I think uh, Michael Durda, of all people, uh, in the Washington Post, turns out to be a, a proud Midwesterner. And there's a way in which he was, uh, he commented this as really he was raising his own flag of regional pride. Um, I have to be clear, this is not merely a flag of regional pride. It's not that you, John Locke, and, and many other people as part of this project don't have regional pride. You have tons of it. But you're also doing this because you think the Midwest is important, not only in American history, but actually in world history. Um, I should emphasize that. Yes, I uh, absolutely. I mean, if uh, people are drawn to this organization uh, through some form of regional pride, that's great. But our our goal with the Midwestern History Association is uh, is to generate more substantive scholarly work on the history of the region. And, uh, you know, that includes the good and the bad. And uh, the the fact that the Midwest has a lot to be proud of um, should not inhibit study of the region. But I, I do think it has something to do with the fact that there's little study of the region, because let's face it, historians are drawn to drama yeah. and conflict and wars yeah. and tyrannies. And uh, when there's uh, a minimal amount of that, the story becomes uh, somewhat boring. Wow. I mean, we all know this problem. Any of, any of us who have taught in a history department know that the course offered in the history of Nazi Germany will fill up in 10 seconds. Yeah, almost as, almost as good as the history of the Pacific War, which is one of my uh, colleagues is teaching right now, which is packed. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, then that's because it's a big, grand, um, very interesting, compelling story. Yeah. And as a major impact on world history. And the students have some familiarity with it. Just because, you know, they flip through the channels and they see the, the History Channel once in a while, which is half about World War II, yeah. which is great. I mean, that's what they're interested in. But uh, when you have a subject that isn't as dramatic, it's uh, a little more difficult to draw an interest. Now, I would add that I think there's a perception that it's non-dramatic. I do think there are a lot of important stories to tell in the Midwest. I mean... 
the beginnings of the Midwest in this big clash of global empires between the French and the British and the Spanish and how the Midwest was sort of carved out of all these imperial struggles, not just by European imperial powers, but by Native American powers in the region who are always waxing and waning and yeah. having battles and switching yeah. sides and switching alliances. If it's you, a, it's if, a very interesting story. Absolutely. If you don't see the... Uh... Dakota is an imperial power, then your definition of imperial power is different than mine. Right. And Tecumseh is a, another figure in that uh, who also has that drama and appeal. You know, I was, uh, you mentioned Michael Durda. Uh, Michael Durda is the Washington Post uh, book review editor who happens to be from the little town of Lorraine, Ohio. And uh, he wrote a, a great book um, that not many people know about it, about growing up in Lorraine and, and what that means. But as uh, Michael was quick to point out to me at a conference in recent years, um, don't forget that Toni Morrison comes from Lorraine, Ohio. <laughs> and uh, she was on public radio last week talking about her new book and reflecting on growing up in Lorraine. And she mentioned the fact that um, when she grew up in Lorraine, there was no um, official segregation or even semi-official segregation. They all Everybody went to the same school. And she described that phenomenon of all these different peoples that came together in Lorraine, Ohio, including Eastern Europeans and what you would call or what people used to call old stock Americans and then African-American families from the South. And she talked about her father who had grown up in Georgia and how much uh, racial prejudice he had faced in the South. And, and she was making regional distinctions. Mm -hmm. She was talking about how much how much different the Midwest was from the South. Yeah. And uh, she was talking about how the racial experiences in the United States were so uh, dramatically different. And, you know, it caused me to think about this is an important angle on Midwestern history that people tend not to think about. Yeah. And, and then the fact that there you know, are lynchings in the Midwest is interesting that that's occurring side by side. Um, you know, when I taught in Indiana, the, one of the, the most famous lynching photographs is, occurs in Marion, Indiana, I believe. Um, right. And that's not that, that's not that far away from Lorraine. Um, well, I think there, I think there are some really interesting intra Midwestern stories to tell. Yeah, exactly. Indiana that you mentioned was very heavily Southern. It was it's the most southern of the Midwestern states. And what I mean by that is it was settled predominantly by Southerners, um, as opposed to uh, a place like Minnesota, which was primarily settled by Yankees from the north and all these immigrant Norwegians and Germans, etc. So you see in this most recent history of lynching in the United States, um, they tally um, the numbers and if you look at Indiana, between like 1880 and 1930 or something like that, there were about 25 lynchings. In Minnesota, there was one. Now, and I think that really represents some very interesting intra-regional variety or complexity or diversity. Yeah. I mean, there are different places in the Midwest made up of different people that have a different, create a different 
kind of political culture. And all that can be explored yeah. under the rubric of Midwestern history. It's not just one giant, bland, monochromatic blob of white people. It's a very interesting and complex place. Yeah. In fact, it's the most diverse place in the United States for most of its history, given all of its uh, different immigrant groups and the great migration of blacks from the South, etc. But yeah. people don't realize that. You know, and, and just to even the diversity becomes more complex when you realize that uh, you cite this figure in your book, that Indiana sent 57% of its military age men to join the Union Army. Um, so this is the most southern state in the Midwest, and yet has uh, really an extraordinary enlistment rate that begins to start to approach uh, some of the lower Confederate states in terms of enlistment. So it's really complex, and it's really yes. diverse. Yes. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the goals of the Midwestern History Association is to embrace that complexity and uh, try and get it across to the world a little bit about how much, how many different and varying and diverse stories there are to tell from this region. Let's talk about the uh, the men you refer to as the prairie historians for, for just a little bit. Um, you touched on them earlier. They had started the, the Mississippi Valley um, Historical Association, right? That was the precursor of the, the Organization of American History. Um, why did they choose the name Mississippi Valley? Well, the giant drainage basin uh, known as the Mississippi uh, Valley, which would include, you know, these important tributaries, the Ohio River and the Missouri River, this makes up the central place that these historians wanted to study mm-hmm. and that they thought was being neglected by historians in the in the East. And they recognized that uh, people in the South had their own set of cultural and heritage and historical institutions. So uh, they, you know, readily noted that no one was studying our region. So they had a meeting in Lincoln, Nebraska, hosted by the Nebraska Historical Society, and representatives came from um, the 12 states in the Midwest, or what we traditionally define as the Midwest. And in 1907, they they planted their flag. They said, we're starting the Mississippi Valley Historical Association to cover this inland region, which was being neglected. And uh, about seven years later, they launched their own journal, which became the Mississippi Valley Historical Review. And it became a very prominent organization. And uh, in the beginning, they tended to focus on their region and publish uh, articles about their region. Uh, 80-plus percent of the articles in the journal in the early years were about the region. And then, uh, you know, it grew grew quite uh, dramatically, and a lot of historians joined. And uh, after World War II, there were so many historians in it from around the country in various places that there was a movement started to nationalize the organization and make it a national institution focused on all of American history. And uh, in the 1960s, that happened, and it changed its name to the Organization of American Historians, which is where we met last week in St. Louis at their annual convention. And they changed the name of the journal from the Mississippi Valley Historical Review to the Journal of American History. Now, there's a lot of good things associated with that, of course, and we need an umbrella organization for American history. But it created a major problem for 
Midwesterners because it, it left them without a place to focus their energies and a place to uh, publish their articles about the region. And, you know, as a practicing historian, you know how this works. It's very, uh, it's a big commitment to take on a research project um, when there are lots of places to publish your work. When there's not an obvious place to, to publish your work, it's a major deterrent to taking on a project. So this contributes to the, the decline in, in the activity uh, in the field. Uh, and then, you know, there were some auxiliary institutions and uh, journals that existed over the years. Uh, there was a journal in Western Illinois. There was one called Upper Midwest History. There was one called the Old Northwest um, Historical Review that came out of Ohio, uh, and a few others. But they have all died. Um, all of them um, went under in the last 20 years or so. So prior to, until about a year ago, well, actually till last fall, there was no journal that focused on the history of the Midwest. And so there was nobody, there was no obvious place to send this sort of work. And, and as a result, the field suffered. I, but it seems to me that this is, uh, what, what I see happening in the field broadly is a lot of people are pushing against what were conventional um, boundaries. Um, and the regional boundaries, well, it, it, I'm a Southern historian, or I'm supposed to be, and um, even in the, the history of the American South, which you'd think is pretty well-defined, and we, we could argue about where the South is. Is Texas part of the South? Blah, blah, blah. But uh, nevertheless, you see at the uh, Southern Historical Association, we have lots and lots of, uh, well, it seems we have numerous sessions now in the Caribbean or on Latin America. Um, their people are very uncomfortable with uh, regional boundaries. They're uncomfortable with national boundaries. Uh, the, I think the most... Um, prominent book discussing the direction of, say, the American History Survey in the last 10 or 15 years was, I think, the U.S. and the world, United States and the world, um, basically arguing that even the way that we teach United States history must be uh, connected to world history, much to teach the United States in amongst the rest of the nations. Um, in my other, my as an early American historian, I mean, I've been born and raised amongst um, the idea of Atlantic history. No one really knows what Atlantic history is, but everyone sure talks about it. Um, yeah, I, I heard Jack Green say that. So if anyone has a problem with that, please direct your emails to Jack Green, Professor Emeritus of History at Johns Hopkins University. Um, yet, so I, I think that, that it's amazing to me that 35 people did show up at a bar in a regional history conference, given the fact that there are seem to be so many forces um, militating against that. Well, I think uh, when I start my course on the history of the Midwest, I immediately begin with the international context of the Midwest. And this is a great exercise, not simply in getting people to think about the Midwest, which I think is a good thing to do when you're offering a class like this um, in the region itself. But you can start with an exercise in international history. And and so I think... um, I think we can kill two birds with one stone in a lot of this, because if you properly begin your history of the Midwest, you begin with Atlantic history. You begin with these imperial histories. Again, not just Spain and France and and Great Britain, but also the imperial uh, 
Indian tribes in the Midwest. And so you can begin with a very compelling story of international history and connecting the United States to global history. And that's very easily done. But at the same time, you can also drill down on local history, and you can help students uh, understand their roots and where they come from and how to orient themselves in the world. I mean, I've always been of the opinion that, um, you know, we should have studies of the world and global studies and multiculturalism, etc., but you really can't do that very effectively unless people know who they are unless they understand their own identity and they, they understand their own place in the world, because then they have something to compare that to. It gives them a context for understanding other places and cultures. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of kids who go to uh, college in the Midwest, um, they don't have a class in Midwestern history and grounding themselves in a particular place where they're from. And, I think that's I think that's unfortunate because um, I think they um, they're going to be stronger individuals, they're going to be stronger students, they're going to be stronger citizens of this republic if they have a some some better sense of their identity, and they're not always bombarded with these messages from the from the dominant media about well you're you're nobody you're from out in flyover country nobody cares about you you know they learn the H L Mencken attitude pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's not helpful to uh, to one's development, I don't think, uh, especially when there is such a interesting history available to be taught. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't done a very good job in our region of keeping these kind of regional historical institutions alive. Um, here's a good example for you, Albert. Uh, at the University of Georgia, since you're a Southern historian, you'll appreciate this. University of Georgia, they have 10 people who teach the history of the South and the history of Georgia. Yeah. Because, you know, regional consciousness is just stronger in the South. At the University of Minnesota, which is an even bigger institution, a major institution with like 50-plus people in the history department, uh, they have zero people who teach <laughs> the history of the Midwest. Well, isn't that and just that's Minnesota? Sort of... I mean, they're just embarrassed. They're just embarrassed to have people focus on them. It would just be embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, isn't it, you suggest that, or I, I think maybe it was uh, someone else at the session suggested that Midwesterners just don't like to talk about themselves. Um, Southerners, that's the beginning of uh, either a party, a wedding, or a fight. I mean, that's, yeah, but, but, but no, come on, Midwest, just, you know, please, let's talk about, let's talk about African history. They'd rather talk about African history. Right. Well, I do think that there is a, there is a sense that, gosh, we don't have much to talk about here. Yeah. This, we don't have much of a history. You know, why, why do we want to spend time on that? Um, but once you get people thinking about it just a little bit, just a little primer, um, they realized, well, there is a very compelling story here to be told. And I think they begin to want to peel back the onion a little bit then. And um, that's what a simple class in the history of the Midwest can do. And, you know, I, I want to emphasize uh, at the beginning of this whole process that we're not asking for the world at the Midwestern History Association. We just want... Um, a few classes to be taught 
on the history of the American Midwest, especially at some prominent Midwestern universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that could be tacked on to existing um, existing areas of emphasis. So, you know, uh, a historian of the American West could learn to do this, or or colonial historians could potentially learn to do this. Hey, I mean, it would be great if they brought on full professors to focus on Midwestern studies. That'd be wonderful. But, you know, we we want to be reasonable about it, and we know that's not always going to happen. But it's, um, it's a class that should be offered once every couple of years at every serious university in the Midwest, I think. Yeah, I think if Southerners can do it, uh, Midwesterners can do it. Um, and um, I, I'm teaching Illinois history right now, uh, which I have to admit I... I um, I did because I wanted to teach future high school uh, history teachers, um, but I am actually starting to find the. Um, I was I'm starting to find Midwestern history, uh, you know, sort of calm, tranquil, and oddly compelling. Um, it, it is a it's a it's a break from Southern history, the Sturm und Drang, uh, of, <laughs> as they call it in Alabama. Um, right. Well, well, I think uh, Albert. One way, another possible solution to all of this is to have people who teach state-based histories, such as yourself, just broaden the course a little bit so that the course is Illinois and the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, and I know of someone who is teaching a class called uh, Iowa and the Midwest. So you can give it a, a little bit of local emphasis, depending on where you are. Yeah. Give, give the state you're in a little more emphasis, but also give them the whole context of the region. Because you know these states, they're not self-contained entities. They're all affected by where they are in space yeah. and in their region. And you know some places are going to be more heavily oriented, like Missouri, for example. Essentially, the southern half of Missouri is basically southern, yes. and the northern half is a different. It's a different uh, breed of cats. There, it's a different form of settlement. There's no slavery. I mean, this is why there's so much clash in yeah. Missouri during the Civil War. There, there's an explanation for this sort of thing, but yeah. um, and, and so we Louis, need to be creative. As I realized again that during the OEH uh, meeting, and St. Louis is a very different kind of river town than, say, well, Davenport, obviously. Um, the the racial story there is very different. It, it is a it's a meeting of it is a meeting of two cultures. Um, right. As we're finishing up, um, where do you go from here? Our immediate goal is to uh, get continue to get people thinking about um, about this field and um, sort of broaden out our base and hopefully bring some more people into the fold. We've got some uh, ideas. Our crack communications team at the Midwestern History Association, which is mostly younger uh, scholars and graduate students who are very savvy about social media. They have some good ideas for reaching out to more historians. Um, More immediately, we're going to have the first ever, as far as I'm aware of, the first ever conference completely focused on the history of the Midwest. Um, Later this week in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, it's going to be at Grand Valley State University, hosted by the Hallenstein Center. And we are going to have uh, about 15 scholars come in and uh, speak about this field. And and um, the, we have some excellent uh, presenters, including the president of the OAH, uh, John Butler. 
and he's been very supportive of us. So we have a nice alliance there with uh, some of the folks at the OAH. But we hope that this conference will lead to a volume of essays about how to go forward uh, with um, studies of Midwestern history. Our next meeting is going to be next year in conjunction with the Western History Association because, well, it's it's a great place to bring in lots of other scholars. And because we believe, and I think a lot of historians would agree with this, we all don't need uh, another meeting to go to. So if we can <laughs> double up, uh, that's that's very helpful. And the Western will be in St. Paul, Minnesota, in 2016. So that's a great location for us. And... Um, the president of the Western has asked me to be on the program committee and scout out topics that are uh, obviously Midwestern. And so, and I think this is a, this is a, an important matter for the people in the Western History Association because they are beginning to realize that they have basically neglected the, um, the Eastern side of the Missouri. And, you know, I think they want to, um, pay some attention to that. And I think the organization, our organization, and the fact that we have nearly 600 members so far, wow. I think that's sent a strong signal to uh, to them that they need to, need to pay attention to this. So we're going to do that, and then we are uh, planning our meeting for 2017 already. We're going to do it in conjunction with the Agricultural History Society. They reached out to us about having a combined meeting. The Ag History Society used to be very heavily Midwestern, um, was located at Ames, Iowa, and in Fargo for many, many years. Um, but in more recent years, it's become a lot more international and broader, less Midwestern. But they want to kind of return to their roots in 2017 for a meeting and we're looking forward to working with them on that, but but uh, but we hope uh, more fundamentally and more long term uh, to uh, work with more graduate students and just get some more books focused on the Midwest and get kind of a corpus of uh, key works out there about the region that are self-consciously regional, mm-hmm. meaning that uh, they don't they aren't just topics that happen to take place in the Midwest, but they they take into account what it means that these historical events took place in the Midwest as opposed to Texas or or California. Well, um, this has been great. I'm looking forward to having other conversations with you and um, members of the Midwestern History Association in the future. The uh, book, for those of you who want to read about Midwestern history, and for those of you who don't, is The Lost Region Toward a Revival of Midwestern History. My guest has been John Locke. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Albert, and continue to spread the word down there in the Quad Cities. Okay. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps the WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.